Exodus chapter 27, starting from verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece, and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and firepans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar, so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar, and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings, so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow, out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall also be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide and have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases. On the east end, towards the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long are to be on one side of the entrance with three posts and three bases and curtains 15 cubits long are to be on the other side with three posts and three bases. The entrance to the courtyard provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide with curtains of finely twisted linen, five cubits high and with bronze bases. All the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it and those for the courtyard, are to be of bronze. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning in the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law. Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Altars are key furniture in ancient temples. We read about the altar, uh, the bronze altar, in our passage this evening. But as we uh, look at other cultures and other countries and situations, they often had altars in their temples. So if you go to South America... And you look at some of the Aztec temples, you'll find altars there. Archaeological digs in uh, the ancient Near East have discovered altars that the Canaanites used and other religions used them as well. And as people look at that historical record of altars, the educated post-Enlightenment view 
says that those cultures in the past had altars because they needed to relieve a guilty conscience. They were harsher cultures generally. In those situations, organized religion was more powerful. People might say they were more primitive. But we, of course, have moved on. We don't need altars anymore, they say. And so, for that reason, this chapter in Exodus, well, it's interesting, but only historically so. It's another ancient artifact, just like those ones we could see in South America and in other Canaanite religions. The problem with that view is the guilt that humans still feel. And you can't get away from it, can you? If you talk to anyone particularly who's involved in prison ministry, they will tell you that prisoners who know they've done wrong are under deep conviction very often at the wrong that they've done. The guilt of the human heart is real. And maybe this evening you're very aware of that in yourself. Maybe you're conscious of things you've done wrong today in the last week and you feel that guilt. We know we've spoken harsh words. We know we've had lustful thoughts. We know that we've had covetous desires. And we might try to educate or even medicate the conscience, but sin still weighs heavy. And the great question that leaves us with is this. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with the weight of the guilt of sin? Some say God will forgive. That's his job. But what about justice? That matters, does it not? Others might say, well, we need to try harder. We need to try and tilt the scales in our favor. But friends, how do you know the weight of your sin so that you can accurately tilt them in your favor? What about the sin that you're unaware of, that you can't even weigh and measure and hope, therefore, to outweigh those scales with good deeds? How we deal with the problem of sin, our guilt before God, lies at the heart of this passage in Exodus. And so for that reason, it's not a passage merely of historical interest. It's a passage that's very relevant to us all today. There are three main things described in the passage. You've got the altar of burnt offering, or is it sometimes referred to as the bronze altar. You have the description and instructions for the layout of the courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle. And then you have the instruction for the preparation of oil and then for the priest to burn that oil there in the lamps in the temple, sorry, the tabernacle overnight. And if you want to see a diagram of this, here's a diagram from the top down. This is uh, from Vern Poitry's book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses, a really helpful book. I commend it to you. And, and there's the tabernacle layout there. In the middle is a tabernacle. We talked about some of the elements of that building last week. 
And then as you come uh, down, you've got the, the laver, lava. And then the focus, particularly for us this evening, is going to be on there, the bronze altar. This square object that's right at the entrance, you'll notice there at the bottom, the opening, the entrance to the tabernacle courtyard. So, so this courtyard surrounds the temple. That's there in the middle of the passage. It, it screens off the tabernacle to some extent, although you could see over it as you look at the heights of the curtains. There is an entrance there at the bottom so that access is available. Now we could say a few brief things about, about the courtyard there in verses 9 to 20. We, we can notice two key differences from the courtyard to the temple and the most holy place. One is to do with the metals that are used. You will have noticed in the description there's bronze and a bit of silver on the outside of the courtyard, on those curtains that surrounded it. But as we got closer and closer to that most holy place, remember there was gold there. Gold being the, the, the metal of the king. The metal of, the, of heaven we also thought of as well. So as you get closer and closer to that central place, there with the ark, the most holy place where God was said to dwell, it gets more and more precious. That's one difference. And then, of course, on the outside, those curtains going around the whole outside of the temple courtyard, they were elaborate and well-made, but they don't have the cherubim on them. Because remember, the cherubim are there on the curtain on the inside of the most holy place and on the curtain between the, mo- the, sorry, the holy place and the most holy place. So there are differences, but we're not going to really focus significantly on those this evening. Our particular focus is going to be on the bronze altar as we look at the description in verses 1 to 8. <coughs> and we'll touch on the light in the tabernacle. Could someone get me a glass of water? Oh, there is one there. Thank you. It's all right. I've got one, Oliver. It's okay. And our focus this evening is going to be on the question, or the the way, I should say, in which the bronze altar shows us a necessity of sacrifice. The necessity of sacrifice. And we're going to have four Ps this evening, if you're taking notes. And the first P is purpose. The necessity of sacrifice, our first P, purpose. And here we see that drawing near to God requires a sacrifice for sins. The God of heaven is holy. People are sinful. We've talked about it already. And the only way in which we can draw near to this God is by the means of sacrifice. And that square altar upon which the sacrifices were burned and upon which the blood from the sacrifices was poured preached the message of God's holiness and his hatred of sin. He was teaching us that sin demands death. Now that's not a a new message in the Bible, As we go through the scriptures, we find that's a a dominant message that sin requires punishment. Sin demands death. So after the fall, when Adam and Eve break the commandments of God, the Lord provides for them leather coverings. And in doing so, 
the first animal is sacrificed to provide those leather coverings. When Cain offers his sacrifice, sorry, when Abel uh, offers his sacrifice, he offers an animal sacrifice. When Noah leaves the ark, he sacrifices animals. And, And Abraham again and again, builds altars and sacrifices on those altars. And the Bible again and again is teaching us that sin demands death. In Romans 3 and verse 23, we read these words. (coughs) For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6 and verse 23 reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. The result of our wrongdoing, the judgment of God, the thing that naturally follows wrongdoing is death because God is just. Now, if you want to know a bit more of what was going on there as sacrifices are happening, I encourage you to read the start of the book of Leviticus Because in the book of Leviticus, in those early chapters, you have a description of the various sacrifices that were performed upon the bronze altar. But Vern Poitres paints a really helpful picture of what it was like to come to the tabernacle. So as we go back and we think about that that layout there, when the worshipper came to the tabernacle, they would approach there on the bottom, and they would come to the entrance, and they would bring with them an animal to sacrifice. It had to be an animal without defects. They would either have raised that animal themselves or they would have bought the animal with their own money. So in some way, their life was identified with this animal. But to further that sense of identification, they would lay their hands upon the animal and then the animal would be killed, signifying substitutionary death. At that point, the priest would take over. The priest would take the sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on the sides of the altar and on the horns of the altar in which he was re-cleansing the altar. And only then was the altar ready to burn the dead animal. Now, one of the things that is a striking detail as you read through those chapters in Leviticus of what would happen is that the altar has to be cleansed before the sacrifice can be performed. And that's why the blood is poured and splashed upon the altar. And what we're being shown there is a seriousness of sin. That that the worshipper themselves, in drawing near to God, in coming into the, the tabernacle courts, they threatened by their very presence as a sinner to defile the sacrificial system itself. Their presence defiled the altar, and so the presence of a sinner coming there meant the altar needed to be cleansed. The same was true of the priests before they sacrificed upon the altar. They had to go through ritual cleansing. What's the message? The message is that sin is that serious. I was speaking with someone this week who was uh, telling me about a problem they'd had with their car, where they'd seen on the dashboard critical electrical failure, uh, sorry, critical ele- electrical failure, urgent service required. And they thought, I'll just keep driving a bit longer. And within five minutes, the car shut down on a major road. 
And what had happened, the alternator had shorted out, it stopped working, so the car uh, electrical system was only operating on the battery, which doesn't last you very long. And that's why it says, critical electrical, fa electrical failure, seek urgent service. You don't keep going. And friends, sin is that kind of problem. Sin is a critical problem. You can't brush it under the carpet. You can't pretend and hope for the best. And all those sacrifices offered again and again on that altar were showing us the seriousness of sin. But they were never dealing with sin. If you were with us a couple of years ago, we worked through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is God's divine interpretation of a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It's one of the big focuses in the book. And we read some wonderful verses and important verses in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 where the writer says, the, uh, starting in verse 3, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just hear that again. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what were they doing? They were pointing forward. They were picturing one full and final sacrifice that was to come. And that sacrifice was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I read something that I'd never seen before this week in Isaiah 53. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 53. And in verses 6 and 7, listen to the language that is used of the Lord Jesus Christ and see how it's sacrificial language pointing forward to Christ and what he is due. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah 53 and verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Do you hear the language of sacrifice in Isaiah 53? Now, why does this matter? Why do we see the necessity of sacrifice in the altar? Well, it's for this reason, friends. One day, we will all stand before God. There will be a final day of reckoning. And on that day, every evil thought, every wicked word spoken, every twisted, twisted evil deed done of every human person who has ever lived will be laid bare. The things that you have figuratively speaking, put in a cupboard, closed the door, and locked with a thousand locks, will be in the open. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? So how will you fare on that day, friends? Either you will pay the punishment for your sins 
or Jesus Christ will have paid it for you? Which will it be? Why do we play games with the God of heaven? Why do we think, well, I'll give it another day before I turned to Jesus Christ? Why do we hold off? Why do we stay back? Why do we allow bitterness about something that may have happened to stop us from knowing that forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ? Turn to him. Trust in him. Believe that he died for you. Because if you do so, God's word declares that on that day you will be safe. That's the purpose of this altar, to teach us that we need a sacrifice and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing to see, and it's the position, the second P of the altar. The location of the altar being there right at the very entrance to the tabernacle courts speaks of there being one way to come to God, and it's through sacrifice. So going back to the diagram, remember where the altar was, that bronze altar. As you walk into the temple courts and you're stood there at the entrance, right in front of you there is the altar, and behind it's a tabernacle. Do you see the visual image? And the image is the only way into the presence of the God of heaven is through sacrifice. There is no other way. It dominated your view as you came to the tabernacle. Now, think of it like this. You know, think back if you're still in school or remember when you were back at school and you did something wrong at the end of the school day and you managed to get home without getting caught. But then you come back to school the next day and you see at the entrance to the school your head of year. And you think, I know why they're there. They want to talk to me about what I did to little Jimmy yesterday because I shouldn't have done it. There's only one way in. You've got to go past the head of year. And that's what the altar is there doing. In its position, in its front and center position, it's saying there is only one way for you to come to this God. There is only one means of you knowing the God of heaven. And it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and that reality in the position of the altar confronts two common ideas that people hold now. That some people say, well, God works on the basis of scales. That if you do good things, you do bad things. If they balance out or in your favor at the end, then you're going to be okay. Now, the Bible never teaches that God works that way, friends. Let's be really clear. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The Bible says the one who sins is the one who will die. So what's the point? You cannot balance out your sins. It doesn't work that way. You have to have 
atonement. You have to have sacrifice to deal with sin. And the good things are not enough to outweigh or deal with the bad things because God does not work on scales. And and people say, well, I'm a good person. And I'm sure, relatively speaking, many of us are. People might say, well, I'm really kind, and I'm sure, relatively speaking, many of us are. Others might say, I'm I'm religious, I'm well-meaning. But the great question that the position of the sacrificial altar puts before us all this evening is, how good are you? Just how good do you think that you are? Because the standard for you and I to come before this great God according to what we do is this. Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. Personal, that means you've got to do it. Perfect, which means 100%. Perpetual means all of the time, all of your life, for every moment. Are you that good? I'm not. God does not work on scales, and it confronts this reality by showing We need sacrifice to come to God. But not only that, it also challenges this view that there are many ways to God which are equally valid. And people say, well, you can choose religion like you choose the soap at the supermarket. You know, whichever smell you like best, buy that one. And it doesn't really matter because they all make you clean. That's a lie. That is not how God works. Different religions might share moral values They might share an idea of the holiness of God, and they may share an idea of a desire to help people change. But they do not share this, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Only biblical Christianity teaches that. And at heart, that means that Christianity versus every other religion has a different view of how serious sin is, and we'll see more of that in a second, and also a different view of how we come before this great God. There are not many ways to God. There is one way through sacrifice, and the prominent position of the altar preached that message to everyone who came to the tabernacle. But then we come to our third P, and it's this, persistence, persistence. And the thought here is that the ongoing operation of the altar taught the utter sinfulness of the human heart. The fire which burnt under that hollowed out altar never went out. Leviticus 6, verses 12 and 13, clearly instruct the priests to ensure that the fire never goes out. Now, think of what that would have been like. It's not burning smokeless coal. It's burning smelly. It's burning black. And the smoke is rising all the time from that altar... And it's, it's filling the viewer in the temple, isn't it? So, so we're, sorry, in the, in the camp. So wherever you look in the camp, 
If you're looking towards the tabernacle, you're always seeing this smoke going up from the altar all the time. You always see it. But not only that, if you think about the the way the sacrificial system worked, when you did wrong things, you had to offer a sacrifice to come before God. So you would be going back to the temple again and again and again and again. Think of it. If you have a step counter, you'd be breaking records, wouldn't you? Because you're going back again and again because of your sins. And then think of the priests there operating in the temple. Think of the work they had to do. It wasn't easy. It was hard work. Every day they've got to keep the fire burning. Every day they've got the blood on their hands from the sacrifices that they're throwing on the altar and their clothing. I mean, it starts clean each day, but it doesn't end clean, does it? It's covered in the blood and the other things from the animals. It's smoky and dirty. And and think of the smoke in their face and their hair and the burning of the sacrifices and the collecting of the ashes and the tidying up. And add to that, there's no chairs in the tabernacle, are there? No chairs anywhere in the descriptions. It's his persistent sacrifices for sins. And I don't know about you, but if I... Maybe the priest would have thought, well, surely people could try a bit harder and sin a bit less. You know, you could think of me and my job here. But they can't, can they? And we can't sin less. We don't even keep our own rules, let alone God's law. I came across this picture recently and it made me smile. It was outside the back entrance to a theater. I don't know if you can see it, but the first instruction in the middle says, strictly no dumping of rubbish in this area. And then you've got two bins right in front of it. And then on the right-hand side, it says, keep this area clear at all times. And one of the bins is blocking the door. Friends, we can't keep the rules that we set for ourselves and that we set for others, let alone the perfect law of the God of heaven. And what do we see, therefore, in the persistent nature of the sacrifices? We see the total depravity of the human heart. That's the message. That means not that we are as bad as we could be. By the grace of God, we're not. But that we are so corrupted by sin that we cannot fix ourselves. That's what total depravity is. It means good works can't make up for our wrongdoing. It means that we ourselves cannot even summon up the faith to believe. Because sin has affected us so much, and so faith itself must be a gift of God. But what a gift it is. I was struck afresh by the contrast in Hebrews 11 if you have a bible turn to, sorry Hebrews 10 verse 11 you have a bible which brings out this ongoing persistent nature of the sacrifices and there's a wonderful contrast at the end of this reading so Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties standing remember no seats in the tabernacle Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, persistent sacrifices, because the human heart is so sinful, which can never take away sins. But here's the contrast, verse 12. But when 
This priest, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. What does he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't it glorious? Doesn't this passage in in Exodus 27 and the whole sacrificial system, doesn't it put the work of Christ in even greater glory, in even greater brightness, that, that the persistent ongoing sacrifices there are no more? Because Jesus Christ has come, Christian. Because Jesus Christ has died for your sins, Christian. Because he has offered one full and final sacrifice by which God's word tells you, you have been made perfect. And your heart responds, I trust as mine does, to say, hallelujah, what a saviour. And when Satan comes and says, how can you do that? Or when you feel in your own heart the guilt again of a sinful human nature, fallen nature, and you feel the guilt, what do you do? You remember that he's sat down. Nothing more to do. No more smoke. No more animals. No more blood. No more ashes to collect up and take away. No more dirty priestly robes. Because he said, it is finished. It's enough. The God of heaven doesn't lie. Keep telling yourself that. God does not lie. His word declares to me. And so I believe, not because a preacher tells me or a friend tells me, but because God of heaven, who does not lie, tells me in his word that by the sacrifice of Jesus, I have been made perfect by faith. I'm forgiven. Are you? On the 20th of April, 1993, an IRA bomb went off just outside St. Helen's Church, Bishopgate, in London. It was on the site of the building now that's known as the Gherkin. And they built that skyscraper in its place, I believe. Now, the church at St. Helen's, where Dick Lucas was the rector... It was a second bomb that had gone off in the course of about a year, but this bomb was way more serious than the first one, and it caused huge damage to the church. But they saw it as a wonderful opportunity to refurbish the building and make some changes. And one of the key changes they made was to remove the altar that was there at St. Helens. And that act in removing the altar caused a massive problem among some other 
churches in London. And the question they put to Dick Lucas was this. How can you be a church without an altar? His answer was, we have an altar. Jesus Christ. And he isn't here on earth. He's in heaven. He has offered the full and final sacrifice for our sins. He never dies again. And so we don't need an altar in our church. And they don't have one to this day. Persistent sacrifices now have come to an end. So we can be assured that we are forgiven. And then fourthly and finally, oh, sorry, that's some pictures of St. Helens. Do you want to see that? So the top one uh, is the old build, well, the old internals, and you can see the altar there at the top, and the choir screen, I think it is, before it. I couldn't get exactly the same angle, but that's the refurbished interior. The choir screen is moved through 90 degrees on the right-hand side there, and there is no altar there on the far right wall there. Fourth thing for us to see. Peace. We've seen purpose, we've seen position, we've seen persistence, and fourthly and finally, peace. And here we're just going to very briefly think about the lamps that were burning in the tabernacle. There's a little, little detail there. At the end of the passage, in Exodus 27, there in verses 20 to 21, you have the beginning of the instructions for the priests, and Andy Price is going to preach next week and pick up some of the elements of chapter 28. But the first job given to the priests is to take the olive oil provided by the people and to keep it burning in the lamps. And the thought here I'd like us to take away is that these ever-burning lamps point to the ongoing presence of God granting peace. Because these lamps never went out. Now, think of what it must have been like in the Israelite camp on a typical evening. You, know, you, you make your meal, which probably means that you're cooking it outside in a fire, and then you have the family meal together, and then you go inside the tent, and you do the sort of things you need to do in an evening, you get ready for bed, you're settling down to bed, and then one by one, if you stood and watched there in the Israelite tent, the, the Israelite camp, you would see the lights going off in each of the tents. Oh, Jones has gone to bed. Oh, you know, Midwinters have gone to bed. Oh, Seymour's have gone to bed. They all go to bed. All but one lamp or one set of lamps. The lamps in the tabernacle, they were always burning. And it was a visual reminder that God was with us and he never goes to sleep. Now, if you're afraid of the dark or you know someone's been afraid of the dark, a nightlight brings security, doesn't it? Well, think of it like this. The tabernacle lit up was the ultimate nightlight. It reminded the people of God that God doesn't go to sleep. We all do because we're creatures and we have to sleep. That's how God has made us. But the God who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And we don't have time to read it, but... If you want to turn to Psalm, if you want to read it later, Psalm 121, there's a lovely reminder there that the God of heaven and hell, the God of heaven and earth, who watches over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, what does that mean? 
God's watching care? Well, it means we have no fear in life and we have no guilt in death because God is with us through the Lord Jesus Christ as we look to him by faith. He's watching over us now and forevermore. But we could say even more than that, can't we, as we think about the peace that comes from the presence of God signified by the lampstands because we can say more. We can say the light of the world has come. The one who has come to bring the hope of God's light and God's presence to this world is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, boys and girls, John's gospel is known for the I am statements. How many I am statements are there in John's gospel? Shout it out. Seven, very good. And one of them in John chapter 8 and verse 12 is Jesus saying this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light in the scripture is a picture of purity and of God's loving presence. Darkness in the scripture is a picture of sin and evil and separation from the love of God. And it's striking that in Scripture, hell is described as a place of ultimate darkness because there is no experience of the love of God in Christ and only the judgment of God on sin. But you and I do not need to go to that place of outer darkness or ultimate darkness. If you look to Jesus Christ... If you look to the one who proclaimed himself to be the light of the world, the one who is God in the flesh, the one who has come to be the full and final sacrifice for the sins of all who will look to him by faith, the one who brings the presence of God to the heart of the Christian because he lives in us by his spirit. If you look to him, if you repent of your sin, if you believe in what he has done, then you can know the peace of the presence of God and the security that comes from knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you. And therefore, just like the lights in the tabernacle were always burning to remind Israel that God was watching over them, so you too can be assured that this great God is with you in Christ now and forevermore. And so you don't need to fear. Amen. Great God in heaven, how we praise you and bless you because of our Savior Jesus Christ. Death, hell, and sin are now subdued. Grace is now given to us as sinners. And so as we plead Christ's atoning blood and nothing else, we rejoice in the gift of eternal life and knowing you now. And so now may the peace, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.